Matthew 6. <clears throat> We're going to begin in verse 25 this morning. If you're joining us new, we've been walking through the teachings of Jesus uh, this sermon he's been preaching, and we find ourselves this morning in the 25th verse. Allow me to read. Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let me pray, and we'll go. Lord, we ask you to guide us in... Through your word, we pray for soft spirits. Lord, protect the words that come from my mouth. Protect the ears that hear them, Lord. We we pray to be changed, permanent change, Lord, that we might be more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, we're on our way to the subject of anxiety, but allow me to start with a picture uh, from my past. When, when I was <clears throat> began flying my airplane in the late 90s to when I ended flying my airplane uh, about 10 years ago, there was a huge evolution in navigation. How we navigated changed dramatically. So when I began flying, we had what you would call an INS, an internal navigation system, which was helpful, but not entirely reliable. It had the tendency to drift over time, so that in the course of a a flight, you might be two miles off where it told you you were, which when it's that much drift, it's not reliable. So you couldn't, uh, well, you couldn't rely on it. 
And because of that, when I began flying, the skill, the ancient skill of navigation was still very, very real in our airplane. Maps, clocks, you'd hack your clock and you'd look at your map and you'd measure lines on the, on the map and you'd look at the ground. It was still very, very rudimentary. And we used the INS as a backup, as a, as a helpful aid, because when it was working, it was helpful, but you couldn't lean on it. Well, that was then. Now we have a GPS. I will never forget when we got the GPS. It was precise. It was reliable. It was useful. It told us a tremendous amount of things that we you know, we're always just estimating in our minds and our heads. It was right there on the screen. It always worked, at least enough to say always. But there was something that happened in our community over those 10 or 15 years uh, is the old school that had learned how to fly by the map when the GPS came along, they added that to their skill set. They just, life got easier for them, but it was incorporated into uh, how they think of flying. Those who, however, who were born into the airframe with the GPS were sort of stunted in their growth. They never really learned how to navigate because there was something they were in control of something that gave them the right answers all the time. I think anybody who's driven a car over the past 10 years, done a lot of driving, knows this, right? Because 10 years ago, if you were going to ask directions from somebody, how do I get somewhere? We would use numbers, all these strange numbers, almost an archaic dialect. We'd say, take I-476 north to exit 3, get off exit 3, go two miles on, on this road, turn left on, you know, Smith Street is the third house on your left. That's how we would talk. You remember that, some of you? You might even look at a thing called a map. Now we don't do that. You get ready to give directions and someone stops you. Don't give me directions, just give me the address. That's like the target coordinates. I don't need to know how to get there. I just need the coordinates of the target. And then you sort of put your nose behind the blue dot and go. You know, and you... You follow the blue dot wherever it's going to take you. And sometimes if, if your phone was to run out of battery, there might be an occasion where you might have no idea where on the planet you are because you've been blindly following. In other words, you don't know how to navigate. You're just in control of your phone. And I'm going to liken that to anxiety. Anxiety in a very real way can spawn out of the, the myth that we're in control when in fact we, if the things that we are, the levers we're pulling fail, we're lost. It's a life that's anchored in the menial mannerisms of control when in reality like our connection to the Lord is severed. 
And that's what the Lord's going to address here this morning. He's dealing with the subject of worry. On the outset, let me just head in by saying uh, anxiety as is increasing among, uh, well, we should say in the United States especially. Not just the perception of anxiety. So it's not, the, it's not that the subject is finally becoming vogue. There's actually an increase in anxiety. And it's happening more in the United States than anywhere else. So disproportionately, it's happening here, which is strange. Because if you think of the things that in your mind commonly trigger anxiety, like, for example, finances, it becomes odd to say that anxiety is increasing in the most financially affluent and economically advantaged culture. But it is. It's increasing where you would expect it not to increase based upon the things that trigger it in our lives. Now, just a careful word. I am not trying to diagnose anyone today. So there are different expressions of anxiety. There are people who have a particular medical connection to anxiety, which I don't presume to know much about. The way I'd like to think about it is I'm, I'm addressing cultural anxiety. I'm addressing, because if it's growing in America, it's a cultural phenomenon. So the way I might think about it or describe it is uh, lasagna. You... And I, this might not actually be how you make lasagna, so I've never actually made it, okay? But I've eaten it, and it's good. But lasagna, you know how it's like layers? I'm pretty sure it's layers. Like you get pasta, and then cheese, and then pasta, and then meat, and pasta, and sauce. And it does that for a long, long time, right? Well, I like to think of that as culture. That's the layers of culture. And you... And however you deal with anxiety, whether you deal with it or you don't deal with it, or to whatever degree, you are your own little person, but you're sitting on the top of all of that. So, as our culture becomes more anxious, you're just riding the wave up top. So, I am not presuming to deal with your particular traits. What I'm dealing with is the cultural norm of anxiety, to which if you do deal with it in a particular way, how much more valuable is it to be aware of how, of the kind of world in which we find ourselves in the general way that we're being assaulted by a culture of anxiety? So with that, let's look at the word of the Lord here and begin to address the issue. I want to start with verse 25, and I actually just want to do the first Uh, half of the verse. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now it's a teaching, I'll stop there, it's a teaching about anxiety, but I want us to note how it begins. It begins with therefore. So it's a teaching about anxiety that's actually anchored in the previous teaching. Therefore, in other words, based upon what Jesus has already said, don't be anxious. 
So we have to sort of remember back. And last Sunday, we, this was our passage. This passage, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself, yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves do not bring in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. That was the principal teaching that is, that is 25 is following. In other words, the Lord is coming out of the idea that you can either serve the Lord or you are a slave to this world. You can't serve both. You can't be a servant of God and a servant of money. You can't store, define your life here and define your life there. You can't do it. You are heading to one place or you're dwelling in another. Therefore, do not be anxious. Worry, and the worry I'm talking about right now is not the knee-jerk response you get, like when you're cut off and you have to slam on your brakes and you have that catch in your heart. That's not what, the, um, that's not what I'm talking about is worry. The worry I'm talking about is the re- resolved response that you make towards a subject. You know, when you, something comes into your life and you, you're looking at it and staring at it and you're turning around on it and you get wrapped around the axle and after, when all is said and done, you come out on the other end and you're worried. That worry, you might say that Jesus is putting as an opposite to faith. There's faith and across the street is worry. That's, what, that's the suggestion here. You can either serve the Lord and follow after God or you can be a slave to this earth. You can't do both. Follow God. Therefore, do not worry. Mark 4 is an account uh, that you might be familiar with. The disciples are in a boat. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep in the stern of the boat in a big storm. Uh, a windstorm rises up and the waves are breaking over the boat and they're beginning to fill up the boat and the disciples are despairing for their very lives. And they finally awake Jesus. They wake him up and this is what they say. And they woke him. And said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Worries across the street from faith. Storm hits, right? The disciples, their lives are still very much like us, embedded in this world and what's going on here. And they understand how a dangerous storm can, can, what can do to, to them. And so they're caught in what's happening here and now as what's really happening in this life. And that breeds in them this fear and this anxiousness and this anxiety to the point where they wake Jesus up and rebuke him. They say to him, why are you not more like us? That's essentially their accusation. Why are you not more like us? Can't you see what's happening around here? To which after calming the storm, Jesus 
sort of suggests, why are you not more like me? Oh, you are of so little faith. Very often, when we're anxious, we pray to the Lord like that. Lord, why are you not more like us? Can't you see the situation I'm in? Don't you say you love me? Don't, don't you make all these sorts of promises for me? Look, look at the dire situation. Look at the turbulence. Look at the storm. Look at all of these things. And really, those are prayers. right? Those are actually prayers that lack faith that are coming to the Lord, frustrated that he's not more like us. Can you imagine if, if we could have, if we could put ourselves in that boat, how different this story might have been if we could have gone to him differently? Like, imagine if we had awakened Jesus and said something like, Lord, I'm scared. I'm scared but you are at peace. How is it that you rest in the storm? Lord, can you teach me how to be more like you? Can you teach me how to rest in this storm? You see that? That just totally different attitude. It's, it's not why is he not more like me? It's why am I not more like him? Lord, help me to be more like you. My problem's not with the storm. My problem is my inability to rest. Worry and anxiety, worry and faith. They're kind of opposites. A life of resolved anxiety is different than a life of faith. Again, we're riding on top of culture. But how if we are in a culture where anxiety is rising, how much more important is a teaching like this? Let's look at the second half of this verse. Jesus says, it's, uh, 25b, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, he's sort of saying it from the positive side. I, would, I might say it from the negative side here. I might say it this way. Worry and anxiety is anchored in a consuming fixation on the particulars of this life. To the extent that the deeper existence, your deeper existence, is rarely explored or considered as part of a meaningful part of your identity. Let's say it again. Worry and anxiety, what they find themselves... Their roots are, are rooted in a fixation on the particulars of this life, the things you can touch, all the levers that you can pull, the things you can affect, the storm, the money, health, appearance, popularity, all of those sorts of things. That's where anxiety is rooted in, is a, is a fixation on those things at the expense of a deep consideration and a meditation on meaning, on purpose, on the identity that God's given you, on who you really are. I might say these, this fiction, fixation on these particulars, I almost think of those as things on the bottom shelf, just low things that are always in front of us, whereas there's this 
reality on the top shelf of who we really are, that God is calling us to. This is what he means. It's not life more than food. It's not the body more than clothing. Were you really made just to keep your heart beating and your temperature at 98.6? Why were you made? This is what Jesus, isn't there a reason? Meaning, purpose, identity. That's what life is about. Not clothes, not food, not money, not all those other things. Here's a good example. This is Luke chapter 10. Story of Martha and Mary. Let me just read it for you. It says, now, this is speaking of Jesus. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now, I want you to listen up with what we're talking about, the subject matter in mind. I want you to hear this. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What the Lord is saying to her is, Martha, you're living on the bottom shelf. You're trying to vacuum the carpet when God is in the living room. Like you're caught up on the particulars of this life And Mary, whereas Mary realizes who it is. And Jesus calls it anxiousness, by the way. Why are you anxious and troubled about these things? Anxiousness is rooted in a fixation on details. It's enough to make me curious. I won't preach it, but I'll question it. To say, if you are like a high nurturer, you know, put your coat on. Did you get something to eat? What about the, you know, the care, a caring person who sort of makes their way in life by taking care of these bottom shelf, totally good bottom shelf things. I, it might be a place to say, uh, make sure that you're not disconnected from the ordering of them by the Lord. I think maybe one of the greatest sins of the church of our time is that we have propagated a brand of what I might call meaningless Christianity in which the adherents to Christ are assured of eternal life and yet allowed to remain preoccupied with life on the bottom shelf. Believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven, but continue to preoccupy yourself with things that do not matter, and anxiety stems from a futility that results in trying to nurture meaning out of those things. So we tell people they're saved in Jesus Christ, but they continue to live their life on the bottom shelf with the particulars of the day, and they're squeezing and nurturing and milking those things for meaning, but meaning's not there. It never has been there. It never will be there. And then we get anxiety. Anxiety. 
want to read you some extracts from some studies. One study published in the 1990s found that people who had pursued who pursued money, looks and status were more likely to feel anxious and depressed. The wealthier and more attractive were more depressed. Isn't that insurance to all us ugly people? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go gain a few more LBs. Here's another study looking at changes in freshman attitudes over a 40-year period found that the number of students who placed importance on financial gains has almost doubled since the 1960s, whereas, quote, developing a meaningful philosophy for life has dropped in importance dramatically. Meaning of life, not important. Wealth, super important. Here's a third one, a meta-analysis, which just means a really big study, that investigated the increased psychopathology in U.S. youths over time concluded that, quote, the results best fit a model citing a cultural shifts towards extrinsic goals, such as materialism and status, and away from intrinsic goals, such as community, meaning in life, and affiliation. What they're saying there is the increase in anxiety and other conditions is coming from an increased fixation in extrinsic goals, things that we can reach out and touch. Bottom shelf living is what he's saying. Bottom shelf living, the study is saying, is causing anxiety at the cost of a disinterestedness with questions like, why am I here? Who made me, and do I matter? All questions God answers. All questions God longs to answer for you. The starting questions of God for you. So why do we do this? Let's look at uh, 26 through 30. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So how does this happen? Why do we preoccupy ourselves on the bottom shelf? I think it is because it gives us the false sensation of control. And control is seen as the natural antidote to anxiety. When someone is anxious, they feel out of control. So to be able to control feels, it is not the cure. It, it is the natural knee-jerk reaction to regain control. There's a, the myth is, the myth that's spoken into us is if you are not in control, then you are out of control. And that's not true. 
You are not in control, but he is in control. That is true. But when we, feel at, when we don't feel in control, we feel like we're out of control. And the natural, what we want to do is reach and grab things that we can control. And so we do that. And we do that all on the bottom shelf because the bottom shelf is there for us. This is what the Lord's saying. He's saying it in the opposite way. He's saying, consider two examples of things that have no pretense of control whatsoever. They simply live their purpose out and God takes care of them. You see that? You don't have a bird questioning why it's a bird. Consider the birds. They just fill their life being what they're supposed to be and God provides for them. And when he sings and he's feeding them, he's not, this is not a sermon on being idle. God doesn't bring the worm to the nest. God provides for them in their purpose. In fact, you might imagine that the bird is effective because it knows its purpose. A confused bird, it's like sits at a clock. Like, it, that's, it's the fact that the bird's at home in its purpose. It's not a call to laziness, and it's not fatalism. It's assurance. It's a reminder. Jesus is reminding you, you are contingent upon a benevolent heavenly Father who made you. You're not in control, but he is in control. But we love control. Like we are, like our culture's thick with control. Two-day shipping. If I don't get it in two days, like, I'm going to call my lawyer. That's how, uh, that's how drawn into control, Pandora, being able to pick your song. Like, I believe you should have to listen to the whole album. I believe you should not be able to pick your song. But we can pick our song and we can customize everything. Everything is customizable. You can... You can pick your major. You can pick your job. You can pick the town you want to live in. All things, all things, by the way, that almost the rest of the world never gets to ask or answer. You can, in America, you can pick your gender. We, have, we are now creating control in places that 10 years ago we didn't even know was a question. We control everything. And we have more anxiety than anyone else. Think about that. Think how relevant this teaching is from Jesus. Stop looking for the cure in control. That's what he's saying. It's like the GPS. Those who grew up in an environment of control, they knew how to work this thing, man. They could push their buttons. But when it failed, on the rare occasions that it failed, they had no idea where they were anxiety like when it failed they realized they thought what they they thought they knew what they were doing they were never actually navigating they were just pulling little levers and when it failed they were lost that's the bottom shelf worry is the sensation that arises when you discover that you are not in control and you have forgotten that your heavenly Father is. That's worry. 
a great way to see this in your own life, to sort of uh, check, check how it's going, is to examine, really examine your prayer life. How much do you pray would be a litmus test. Is rarely? Well, then <clears throat> I guess you're in control. Or what's the nature of your prayers? So don't assume because you pray a lot that your prayers, the nature of your prayers will actually tell you more than how frequently you pray. So how are you praying? Because if you're praying like, Lord, fix her, or Lord, uh, give me that, well, by the way, those are still control prayers. You're just pulling the levers. You've made God into a vending machine. It's all you've done. And you're trying to get God to do what you want. So think of the nature of your prayers. Prayers that you want to hear are things that, in your prayer language, begin to testify to the fact that you are not in control, but he is in control. Like, Lord, help me to see things as you see things. You see that? I don't see it the way you see it. I'm not mad that you don't see it the way I see it. I don't see it the way you see it, and I wish I did. Or, Lord, expose the sin that's in me that keeps getting in my way. Or, Lord, show me the lies that I'm living. Or, Lord, give me the grace that I need to forgive. These things that I don't have. Lord, help me to look to you. All of these things. Do you hear the dependency in those statements? Are those part of your prayer life? One, life is more than just earthly living. It's more than food and water and stuff. It's meaning and it's purpose and it's found in Jesus. Two, I am not in control. I'm not out of control, but I am not in control. And peace in this life is found through faith in the one who is in control. Okay, the cure. Let's look at the cure. Verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That last sentence is hard for me to understand. Other translations say something like, tomorrow has, uh, today has enough trouble of its own. It's a way to understand it. Do you see how, by the way, this is not some idealistic prescription of God. This isn't like leave the world and all of a sudden become spiritual. Don't you hear God's identifying with our hardship? There's, he's saying to you, he's so dialed into your life that he's saying, don't you have enough trouble today just to worry about today? And you're trying to control tomorrow because, right, we, in being control freaks, and since we're squeezing the bottom shelf for meaning and not getting it, we're not getting peace on the bottom shelf. It's not enough for us to know what the weather's like today. We have to know the five-day forecast. We really have to. And then the 10-day, which we know that they never get the one-day correct. And we still look at the 10-day. Why do we do? It's because we don't feel safe unless we feel like we are in control. You're not. And true safety comes from being with the one who could take a nap in the midst of a storm. The problem is not the storm. The problem is we can't take a nap. We can't rest. Like 
he rested. This is not idealism. The reality is, is we are not in control, but we have been made with purpose and meaning. That's the beauty. We've been made with purpose and meaning. And seek that first. When you have a sense of how you, how you, who you are and how you are with God, everything else will flow. This week, two thoughts. One, I want to challenge you to at least test the statement, worry sits across the street from faith. Worry is an opposite. When you get caught in resolved anxiety, rather than thinking of it as a medical predicament or something like this, right? And I understand all of those exist, okay? So I'm not trying to clear the table. I'm just saying there's a truth. And you're riding on the top of a huge culture of it. Call that worry what it is. And two, I want I want you to ask. Uh, well, begin to ask about things. Can it be taken away from me, or will it pass away? Look at the things that matter to you. Can it be taken away from me, or will it pass away? So your possessions. Will it be taken away from you, or will it pass away? Yeah. Your family. Will it be taken away from you, or will it pass away? Yes. Your home. Will it be taken away, or will it pass away? Yes. Just go through all these. Your appearance, your health, your role, your reputation. Will it be taken away from me, or will it pass away? What about the love of the Father? Will it be taken away from you, or will it pass away? Never. The mercy of Christ. Will it be taken away from you, or will it pass away? Never. Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll order everything else. Let's pray. Lord, we give you this time, and I pray we give you our hearts on this. I pray an openness in our spirit so that you would change the way we live and think and move. Lord, give us the humility to know that in, in your sight we're small and we're large, that you love us so much, and yet we're not like you. And we pray this, Lord, so that when the storms arise, we go to the Lord, we, go to the, we pray to you with the right questions, Lord. We pray that you would help us rest in the midst of the storm. In Jesus' name, amen.